Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and it's active. It is alive. And tonight you want it to be active in our lives. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, you are able to divide tonight between flesh and marrow. Between the, the spiritual and the natural. And we pray, Lord, that you would pierce our hearts tonight by your words. You would speak to us. You know where each one of us is at, God. You know what's going on in our lives. You know how the, the last week has been. You know how the last few years have been. And you know our future, Lord. And you know what we need to hear tonight. Lord, you know where we've fallen and uh, failed. Where we've been defeated. And Lord, you know our victories and our successes. And where we've conquered in you. And so, Lord, we'd ask that you would speak prophetically, relevantly, into each one of our lives tonight for your glory, Lord, that we might be transformed into your image tonight. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 22. We'll pick it up in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room, and there make ready. So they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. The Passover feast. It was uh, the most celebrated and the most celebratory feast of all of the Jewish feasts, of all of the Hebrew uh, feasts, of all of the the feasts in Israel. This was the, the most celebrated one. It was the most important one. This was the time when they would remember that God delivered them, those few million Jews, from the hand of Pharaoh, from bondage and slavery to Egypt. And they would remember the tenth plague specifically. Um, There was nine plagues before this that God kept pouring out plagues and judgment upon Egypt, hoping that Pharaoh would soften his heart and he would say, okay, you can take your people, they can go. I'll free them. But Pharaoh kept hardening his heart toward God. We see through the book of Exodus. And so God brought the tenth plague, the worst of all, when he would take the life of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. But he said to his people, But if you will take a lamb and slaughter it, and take its blood, and put the blood over the doorpost of your house, and over the mantles of the door of your house, then when the spirit of death comes to take the life from that house, and he sees the blood, he will pass over your house. And so they would remember every year after that, the Lord instituted a celebration to remember that God passed over the houses and didn't pour out His judgment on those who had uh, the the blood of the Lamb over their doorposts. It's interesting that God didn't specify only the Hebrew people could sacrifice a lamb and put the blood over their doorposts. If there would have been uh, an Egyptian friend who heard this, and they would have trusted in, in the God of, of Israel and said, whoa, I believe this, and slaughtered the lamb, then God would have passed over their houses as well. And so every year they would celebrate the Passover. And here they are, the night before Jesus is crucified, Jesus celebrating this Passover feast 
with his disciples. And so they go into this upper room. And then in verse 14 it says, When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It says there that Jesus took the cup. There was and is uh, four cups in the Passover feast. This one was the first cup. And so he took the first cup. It was called the cup of blessing. And he would have said some kind of traditional prayer, sanctifying the night unto God, saying, Lord, this celebration is for you. We remember all that you've done. And so he took the cup and he gave it to them to drink. And then in verse 19 it says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There would have been three pieces of unleavened bread that night at the Passover feast. And they would have been big square, like matzah crackers, if you've ever had used matzah crackers for communion, the unleavened bread with the pierced little holes in it. They would have taken a big unleavened piece of uh, bread, matzah, three of them. And they would have had this pouch with three different compartments. And each three of the matzahs would have been slid in there and then kind of closed up. Now it was tradition and still is that they would take out the middle matzah and the leader of the Passover would then break it. He would put half back in and he would wrap up half of it and go and hide it. For the children to later go in kind of a fun little game, they would go and find it. It's a beautiful picture of the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the middle of the Trinity, the Son taken out, broken, for us on the cross, wrapped up, hidden away in the tomb, only to rise three days later. But Jesus, when he took out the matzah, could it have been this one, this middle one? Quite possibly. He took it out, he broke it, it says, but he didn't wrap it up and go and hide it. Instead, he, he said, take, eat of this, this is my body. Take, eat of this. This is my body. It says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, Surely He has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows, and yet we reckoned Him stricken by God, struck down by God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord was broken on our behalf. Smitten by God. Struck down for our iniquity. And then he took the bread and he said, Take, eat of this and do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples would have thought, Remembrance of what? Lord, rem remembrance of the last three years that we've spent with you? Remembrance of your whole 33 years on this earth, remembrance that you are the Son of God, remembrance of all of that, remembrance of some of it, what? Remembrance of what? But as they would have stood at the cross, some of them the next day, and they would have looked upon their Savior, literally, physically being broken, his flesh being torn as they would have whipped him with the cat of nine tails, the flesh of his face and of his brow, 
being broken and torn open is they would have put the crown of thorns upon his head as his beard was torn out, as the nails were driven into his hands and into his feet, they would have looked upon him and they would have said, remember last night, he took the bread and he said, this is my body and he broke it and he gave it to us and he said, remember him. This is what we were supposed to remember. And so they took of the matzah and they ate of it after he said, do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. It says that he took the cup after supper. As I just alluded to uh, a minute ago, there was four cups. There was the first cup, the cup of blessing, which Jesus took and said the traditional sanctification prayer. There was the second cup, the cup of the plagues. Jesus skipped this cup. Why did he skip this cup? Well, this cup was to remember the ten plagues that were poured out on Egypt. It was to remember what they were delivered from, the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so they would pour this second cup, and they would recall each of the ten plagues. And as they did, they would pour out just a little bit of the wine for each one of the ten plagues. But Jesus chose to skip this cup. Why? Because this was a new celebration of the Passover. This was a new celebration of deliverance. No longer would they and we be celebrating a physical breaking of chains to Egypt and to Pharaoh, but now in this new covenant, we would celebrate that the Lord has not delivered us from the hand of Pharaoh, but from the hand of Satan. Not broken the chains to Egypt, but broken the chains of sin. And so it was no longer relevant. That was a physical deliverance. But now it was an, a spiritual, lifetime, eternal deliverance. And so the Lord skipped the second cup. Now, we also skip the fourth cup, the cup of acceptance and praise. But he did refer to a cup. He said there in verse uh, 19, I'm sorry, 18, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God would come, the millennial kingdom. This other cup, the fourth cup, the cup of acceptance and praise, he didn't drink of it. But you know what? I believe that when Jesus is ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom from the throne of David, that he will then drink of this cup. Why? Because it is at that time that Israel as a whole will accept and praise Jesus as their Mashiach, as their Messiah. See, here 2,000 years ago, they had not accepted him as a whole. In part, some of them had yes. But then they will see him. They will look upon him who they, whom they have pierced. And they will realize, this is the Messiah. This is the one. And they will accept him and praise him as such. And so we skip this one. But the cup after supper, the third cup, it says there in verse 20 that Jesus took the cup after supper. The third cup was taken after supper. It was the cup of redemption. And this was the cup that the Lord chose to institute communion, to institute the Lord's Supper. This was the cup that he held up and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As we take communion, and even tonight as we take communion, we take the, the juice, it's not wine here, we take the juice, and it is to remember his blood. And he said, this cup, the third cup, the cup after supper, the cup of redemption, I am choosing to represent my blood. 
First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing this, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. We were not purchased. You know that your body is not your own tonight? My body is not my own. It was bought at a price. And it wasn't bought with perishable things. It was bought with the precious blood of Christ as of a spotless and blameless lamb. And so he took that third cup, the cup of redemption. It's interesting that he used the third cup, the cup of redemption, to represent his blood, which according to 1 Peter 1, is the very thing that would redeem us. Amen? How good is the Lord? I love that, that picture. And so in verse 20, he says, Take, drink of this. This is the new covenant in my blood. Now, as he said those two words, new covenant, every Jew in the room would have immediately thought two things. First of all, marriage proposal. It was custom in the time of Jesus that if you wanted to, as a man, propose to a, a lady, you and your father would go to her house and have a meeting arranged with her and her father. And you would begin to discuss then the bride price, the, pot, the price that would be paid for her hand. And then they would decide on it. It'd usually be, uh, in today's time in Carpinteria, it'd be about a million dollars. It was the price of a home. And so they would decide on the bride price. And after they had decided it, the father of the son would take wine and he would pour it into a cup, into a glass, and hand it to his son. The son would then take the glass and he would stretch it out to the proposed bride. And he would say, take, drink of this. This is a new covenant. Asking her, will you enter into a new covenant with me? They wouldn't put rings on the finger. They wouldn't get on a knee and hold up a, a ring with diamonds in it. They would reach out a cup and say, drink of this cup with me. And if she would do so, she would say, yep, I'm choosing to enter into this new covenant. If she didn't drink, then the guy was bummed and he went home crying. But after she would drink, he would then leave and go prepare a place for his bride. And someday in the, in the near or not so near future, he would come back in an unknown time. It's interesting that also on this night recorded in the, the Gospel of John, that Jesus said, um, I'm going away now, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go, surely I will come back. We are the bride of Christ. And so the Lord will come back to get us at a time that we don't know. And on this night, he reached out this cup. This wasn't tradition. It's, still, it's not now. This was a new covenant. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. They would have immediately thought marriage proposal. But the second thing, and the more important thing that they would have thought, and probably the first thing that they would have thought, being Jewish boys, when they heard those two words, New Covenant, they would have thought, oh my gosh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah 31? The, the Lord said, the Lord said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one that I made with your fathers, which they broke in the wilderness. A new covenant? A new covenant? Are you kidding? What did the new covenant say? What did the new covenant say? Jeremiah 31, let's turn there and see what the new covenant says.
When you get it, say, got it. What was so important about the new covenant? That Jesus was willing to give his life to purchase it. What's so amazing about the new covenant? That Jesus would spill his blood to buy it. What's so amazing about it? Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's the first one. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. That's the second part of the covenant. And thirdly, thirdly says the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This covenant was promised to Israel eventually. It has still not been fulfilled in full to the nation of Israel. But it will eventually. However, it was the new covenant was inaugurated for the church to the church now. It was inaugurated for us now. Hebrews ten nineteen and 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, a new covenant, which He, Jesus, inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh. To inaugurate. It means to make operative, to put in place. When we have a presidential inauguration, it's to make operative the President of the United States. And it says here that with the blood of Jesus, with His death on the cross, with His body that was broken, He purchased for us a new and living way, the new covenant, and has inaugurated that to us, His body, those who would believe and trust in Him. This covenant was a threefold covenant. First of all, at the end of verse 34, it speaks a covenant of relationship. Secondly, at the beginning of verse 34, it is a covenant of relationship. And thirdly, it is a covenant of an internal working of God to enable and change our lives. In short, it is a covenant of sanctification and the sanctification process. First of all, the covenant of forgiveness, the end of verse 34, it says there, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. With one sacrifice, Jesus purchased the forgiveness of sins. Under the old covenant, it would be when you sinned, oh man, I need to make an atonement for this sin. And so they would go and they would shed blood of a, an innocent animal. And that, that blood would cover their sin. It didn't wash it away. It would cover it. Kind of push the sin under the carpet. Cover it with a blanket. And then they would sin again and, oh my gosh, I've got to make another sacrifice to atone for my sin. And they'd sin again, another sacrifice to atone for my sin. Sin again, another sacrifice to atone for my sin. And so there was this continual sacrificing But Jesus is saying, 
No more the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats and of lambs. But he purchased with his blood the first part of this new covenant, the forgiveness of sins now and for the rest of our lives. It says there in verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It speaks of a complete washing, a complete removal of sins. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It says that he made one sacrifice forever. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. No more would there be a need for this continual sacrificing. That's the idea of the cross when Jesus said, It is finished. It is done. It is paid for. No more this continual, Oh, I sinned. i got to make an atonement for my sins. But it says Jesus sat down. He is our high priest. Sat down at the right hand of God. He rested. He rested and said, it's done. The price has been paid. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The word cleanse in the Greek there is in the present perfect tense. It means continually cleanse. It means now, if I just sin, the Lord cleansed me. If I sin again right now, He's cleansing me. If I'm sinning tomorrow, He already cleansed me. If I sin in ten minutes, He already paid for it and He's cleansed me. It's a continual cleansing. And their sin, I will remember no more. But everybody knows that Jesus died on the cross and shed His blood for the forgiveness of sins. If you're a Christian here tonight... Um, and you don't know that, then you're probably not born again because everybody has to know in order to be born again that Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins that our sins might be forgiven. Amen? But on the cross, Jesus accomplished so much more than the forgiveness of sins. So much more than simply our salvation. If that was all He had accomplished, that would be enough for us, Right? Lord, you died and you've given me salvation. You've, you've made me born again, forgiven my sins. I have eternal life now. Amen and amen. Lord, that's enough. And for some of us tonight, you're like, what are you talking about, bro? That, that's, that's all I know of the cross and that's all I think the cross was for and I'm okay with that. But the Lord is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And He chose to do that on the cross. And His work on the cross was so much more thorough than simply salvation. We often think that God's salvation, giving us salvation, the forgiveness of sins, exhausted His grace. But it didn't. Jesus, with His life, also bought the second part of the new covenant, a covenant of relationship. Jesus purchased with His blood access to intimacy. That's why that when He hung on the cross and the earth shook, that in the temple the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Signifying access has been granted. No longer could a 
Just a high priest enter in once a year into the presence of God, terrified with a rope tied around his waist and the end of the rope outside just in case he died being in the presence of God. They could pull him out and no one else would have to go in. No longer would it be like that. It was torn in two from top to bottom. Who tore it? God tore it. It was from top to bottom. Saying, you can come in now. A covenant of relationship. A covenant of intimacy. It says there in verse, the beginning of verse 34 of Jeremiah chapter 31. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. They shall know me. It's the Hebrew word yada. It is the same word used throughout the Old Testament when it says, And Adam went in and knew his wife. And Abraham went in and knew Sarah. It speaks of sexual intercourse, to be frank. That's what the Bible's speaking of when uh, Abraham went in and knew Sarah and Sarah bore a child. The Lord chose to use the same word, yada, to describe this covenant of relationship. No more shall every man have to say to the Lord, Know the Lord, but they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. It has always been God's desire for His people to be in His presence and for Him to be in His people's presence. And so God was in the presence of His people. But under the old covenant, His people were not allowed to be in His presence. Because of our sinful state, only the priest once a year would be able to go in and stand in the very presence of God. But it has always been the Lord's desire. And so on the cross, Jesus purchased this. But you know what? Not only does the Lord allow now this intimacy, this relationship, but He seeks it. He desires it. Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, said, the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Greek word for worship in the New Testament is proskuneo. Anybody know what proskuneo means? What does it mean? To turn toward and kiss. Pros, to turn toward. Kineo, to kiss. Jesus said, The Father is seeking those who will turn toward and kiss Him. He's looking for intimacy. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, by the way, the word testament means covenant. So, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Old Testament, New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God chose to use a different word for worship. The word shaka, that band that comes and leads worship here. Shaka means to bow down in worship. In the Hebrew, to bow down in reverence before a king or a deity. But in the New Testament, proskuneo, the new covenant, access has been granted. Intimacy is desired by the Lord unto the Lord. But not only did Jesus purchase on the cross the forgiveness of sins, not only did Jesus purchase on the cross this access to intimacy, this relationship with Him, but he also purchased on the cross sanctification, an inward working of God to enable and change our lives. 
Jesus bought this on the cross. If I ask this a question tonight, how are we saved? Are we saved by works? Are we? No. How are we saved? By grace through faith, right? By grace through faith. If you don't know that and you're claiming to be a Christian then, and you think you're saved by the works of the law, then, man, you're wrong. And maybe there's a chance that you're not born again, again tonight. Because we are saved by grace through faith. You've got to know that. You cannot work and earn your salvation. We know that as, as believers. We, we should know that. You've got to know that. We are saved by grace through faith. But then if I was to ask this tonight, so how do we grow as Christians? You'd say, well, you've got to read your Bible and you've got to pray and you've got to worship and you've got to go to church and you've got to be obedient and we begin to list off these do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do's, right? And granted, we do grow by those things. Britt just said it a couple weeks ago. Man, uh, Christians don't grow day by day. They grow word by word. Amen and amen. But do we know tonight the same source that we were saved, the grace of God, is the same way that we grow as believers. Colossians 2.6 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. How have we received Christ Jesus? By grace, through faith. Not of the works uh, of the flesh, lest any man should boast. By grace, through faith. Just as you have received Christ, so now also walk in Him. The third part of this covenant, the covenant of an internal working of God to enable and change our lives. A covenant of sanctification. Verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will write, I'm sorry, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Literally, I will write it on their inward parts. Your inward parts. The Lord says, no longer will the law be written on stones, on tablets of stone, on scrolls, in the book, the Bible, but I will write it on your hearts. Church, this is and was not a commandment of God. This was a provision of God. We'll talk about that more in detail in just a second. But he says, I will put my law in their minds. My law, the law. We read all the, the do's and the don'ts in the law. The Lord says, I will put my law on their minds and write it on their inward parts. If we could sum up the law tonight into three things, it would say this. Be holy. Be holy. Leviticus 19, 1 through 4. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. Be holy. How holy? As holy as God. The second thing it would say is be loving. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Leviticus 19, 18. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Be loving. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. How loving? As loving as Jesus. And thirdly, it would say, be perfect. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy. How holy? As holy as God. Be loving. How loving? As loving as Jesus. Be perfect. How perfect? As perfect as your heavenly Father. 
That's a pretty gnarly command, right? The law is pretty, we feel like, I'm going to go home now. It just kind of kills us, right? Be holy as God. Be as loving as Jesus. Be as perfect as your heavenly Father. Are you joking me? It's impossible. It's unbelievable. The law commanded these things. But it did not provide these things. The law is not capable of providing these things. Ephesians 2.9 says that we cannot be saved by the works of the law. We're saved by grace through faith. Galatians 2.16 says we cannot be justified, have right standing before God by the works of the law. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says we can't receive life by the law. It doesn't give life. Instead it says the letter of the law kills. That feeling that we just had when we looked into the law, that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Galatians 3.3 3 says that we cannot be sanctified. We cannot grow as believers by the works of the law. And Hebrews 7.19 says, And never has and never will a man be perfected by the law. So we can't be saved by the law. We can't be justified by the law. The law doesn't give us life, nor abundant, nor eternal. The law can't bring sanctification. And the law can perfect no one. Why the law then, God? Why the law? Lord, why the law? Well, the law is God's character. It is God's standard. As holy as Him. As perfect as Him. As loving as Him. It is His standard. It is His measuring rod. Your brother, sister, is not the measuring rod. The Lord, holy, perfect, loving, He is the measuring rod. And His law is the measuring rod. It is not the life giver. It cannot produce life. No, it is God's plan for our lives. It is what we are supposed to grow into. It is God's desire for us. It is His plan for us, what we will grow into. As holy as Him, as loving as Him, and as hard as it is to understand, as perfect as Him. It is what we are to grow into. Some uses of the law, Romans 3.19 says, that it shuts up the self-justifier. I'm a good person. Are you as holy as God? As perfect as the Heavenly Father, as loving as Jesus? It shuts up the self-justifier. Again in Romans 3.19, it says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. I would not have known not to covet unless the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Romans 7.5 says that the law arouses us to sin. Tell a man not to lie, what does he want to do? He wants to lie. It arouses us to sin. But the best and my favorite use of the law is Galatians 3.24 when it says, Therefore, the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law shows us our need for Jesus. 
You look into the perfect law of liberty as a man looks into a mirror. And you see your inward person. And the law says, be holy as holy as God. You need Jesus. Be as loving as Jesus. You need a Savior. Be as perfect as your Heavenly Father. You need the Christ. The law shows us our need for a Savior. It is the schoolmaster, the tutor, the one who brings us to Jesus. In the law and in the gospel, righteousness is still the idea. It is still God's plan for our lives. It's still His desire. It's still His standard. Righteousness is still the idea. But in the old covenant of the law, it was demanded. In the new covenant of grace, it is provided. The Lord has provided it in the new covenant. The law is the what. The new covenant of grace is the how. The Lord's desire is still righteousness. The law, like I said, describes God. He is holy. He is loving. He is perfect. And under the law, the man strove to be like God in a good way. I want to be as holy as God, as perfect as Him, as loving as Him. And they strove to accomplish these things. But in the new covenant of grace, the Holy Spirit works in us to transform us into the image of Christ. He works in us to transform us into the image of Christ. The law says, be holy. Be as holy as God. Do you know that the Lord is working this and has accomplished this in your life tonight? Ephesians 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, listen, holy and without blame before Him in love. It says there that God chose us to be in Jesus, that we should be holy and without blame. It is a promise. It is a statement. It is not a command. He has chosen us to be in Him, that we should strive to be holy and without blame. No, it's something that is accomplished, that we should be. We are in Him, holy and without blame. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Father, He's praying, right? Father, sanctify them. Sanctify, it means to be made holy. Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. Who was Jesus praying to? The Father. Who was He asking to sanctify the church? The Father. Who does the work? The Father. It is God who does this internal working to change our lives, to sanctify us, to grow us. It is Him who does the work. Be as holy as God. God has provided it for us in the new covenant. Be as loving as Jesus. If you're a believer tonight, then you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And Galatians 5.20 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love, though. 
It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is something the Holy Spirit produces in us. It's not something we have to strive to produce. The Holy Spirit produces it in us. I love it. Britt said this before. You don't ever roll into a, an orange grove and see the orange trees going like this. You don't see them striving to produce fruit. You roll in and they just straight chilling. Just popping out fruit. They're not striving to produce it. The branches are simply abiding in the trunk, in the vine. And it's giving them all the nutrients. They're soaking up the, the sun, getting the nutrients from the ground, and they're producing fruit. So it is with the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Be as loving as Jesus. The Lord says, my Spirit in you is and will produce this. It's my work. You don't need to strive to produce this fruit. I will do it by my Holy Spirit. And be as loving as Jesus. I'm sorry, be as perfect as the Heavenly Father. Whoa, bro. Okay. Be as holy as God. I, I knew some stuff about the New Testament, you know, saying that we're holy in God and fruit of the Spirit is love. But be as perfect as your Heavenly Father? Come on, man. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews 10.4, it says that by one, sorry, 10.14, for by one offering, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. By Jesus' offering on the cross, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Do you know tonight that you stand perfect in Jesus? That you are positionally perfect in the Lord? Sure, practically, we know we're not perfect in the Lord. I mean, in the Lord we are. We're not perfect. Practically speaking, I'm not perfect, man. But because of the blood of Jesus, He has, past tense, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The old covenant of the law demanded these things, but the new covenant of grace provides these things for us tonight. He has provided these things for us tonight. There was another uh, little thing that would happen at that Passover feast. Right before dinner, someone at the table would pick up a basin of water, which would be there. And they would begin to walk around to each person at the table. And each person would take the water and they would begin to cleanse themselves. It's not recorded that Jesus did this at the Passover feast. It is recorded, however, in John chapter 13 that he took a basin of water that last night and did something else with it. What was that? He washed the disciples' feet. Was it the same basin of water? Maybe. Jesus took a basin of water. He girded himself. And he didn't go around and say, now cleanse yourself. You do the work. Instead, he said, I do the work. I will cleanse you. Man in the Old Testament was striving to accomplish the law. But the Lord says, no, in the new covenant, I accomplish it in and through you. I will work and change your lives. I have purchased this on the cross. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. 
if the law says be holy, be loving, be perfect, that's Jesus, right? That characterizes the Lord. Be holy, loving, perfect. He is holy, He is loving, He is perfect. That is who He is. And as we fasten ourselves to Him, we partake of who He is. Jesus said in John 15, Abide in the vine. Abide in me. I am the vine. You're the branches. Abide in me. And you shall bear much fruit. It's a promise. Not maybe you will. Not sometimes you will. You shall bear much fruit. It's our job to stay close to Jesus. We so often get focused on step two. Step two is... uh, Obeying the Lord, having victory over sin, uh, being obedient to the call of God, spending diligent time studying His Word, and uh, intimate relationship with Him, praying and worshiping, and the fellowship of the saints. That's step two, right? We work so hard to produce these things. We forget step one, which produces step two. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. We try to skip over it. By the works of the law, by do, 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 doing. But the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so as we fasten ourselves to, and we abide in Jesus, we partake of who He is. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship. We are His masterpiece. In the Greek, we are His poema, where we get the English word poem. We are His poema, created in Christ Jesus, listen, for good works. Okay, I received that, but listen to the next part. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen to this. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Speaking of the good works, it says that God has prepared those good works beforehand that we should walk in them. The Lord has already done the work that we might walk in them. We know that on the cross, Jesus did the brunt of the work to bring us forgiveness of sins. He did everything. He worked so hard on the cross so we could just put our trust in Him and our our faith in Him and believe that and receive by grace salvation. But the Lord also has worked so hard on the cross to accomplish our sanctification, our growing in Him. So we don't have to work so hard. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means that God has laid out a path for you and I in our lives of good works, obedience, victory over sin, intimacy in His Word and through prayer, fellowship, worship. God has prepared a life of good works. All we have to do is grab the hand of Jesus, abide in Him, and follow Him through these good works. He's already prepared them beforehand. And how do we access this amazing provision of God providing this internal working to change us and enable our lives to be holy and perfect and loving? The same way that we access salvation, by grace, through faith. So as you were saved, received Christ, so also walk in Him, by grace, through faith. That's how we access this. Those who come to God must believe that He is. He is what? He is God. We must come to Him in faith, believing that He is God and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. 
He is our provision. He is our sufficiency. He is our sustenance. He is the life giver. And we must come to him in faith and grace. How do we access grace? The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord to receive this this necessary grace. How humble, Dominic? As humble as a little baby boy or girl is in needing their daddy to do everything for them. My daughter's only 19 months old. But at the same time, that's 19 months. That's a lot of months. She's been alive for 19 months. But she can't do a dang thing. She can't, she can't feed herself. It gets all over her face. She can't change her diaper. She can't go to the bathroom on the toilet. She can't put on her clothes. She can't put on her socks or shoes. She can't put barrettes in her hair. She can't make no macaroni and cheese. She can't do anything. She needs me or my wife to do everything for her. She is forced to come to us in humility. She's a humble, little, perfect, amazing, little Selah Eden Valley. But she's humbled. She can't do anything. And so the Lord wants us to come to Him with childlike faith. Remember? The kind of faith that depends on the Lord for everything. Lord, I can't have victory over this sin. You need Jesus. Lord, I can't walk in this calling. Man, you need the Lord. Every time I get up to teach the Bible or to lead worship, I am confronted with the stark reality that I am inadequate. I am insufficient to do these things on my own. And I have to beg of the Lord, Lord, please, God, I can't do the simplest of things. Not because I'm nervous or like, oh, I've never led worship before, I don't know how to do it. Sure, I could come out here and lead worship in my own strength, But because I know that I can't do it successfully for the kingdom and the glory of God unless He is working through my life, unless I am surrendered to Him in humble faith, I need His grace to work through me anything that's beneficial for the kingdom of God and that has eternal value. Humble faith accesses grace. And we need the grace of God to enable and change our lives for His glory. And so He will work in us and through us and provide, and He has provided for us, holiness, perfection, that is full maturity, loveliness, if that's a word. We need Your grace tonight, Lord. We need His grace. God, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the new covenant. Lord, we thank You that on the cross... You purchased the new covenant. And that it was so much more than just the forgiveness of sins, although, Lord, that would have been enough. But thank you, Lord, for how thorough and complete your work on the cross was and is for today. And, Lord, we want to know you like a husband knows his wife. Lord, we want to experience even more of that forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we want to trust you to work in and through our lives as we abide in you, Jesus, allowing you to just produce that fruit in our lives. Hebrews 10, 19 
through 23 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. The Lord has provided tonight access to intimacy with the Heavenly Father. And so let's enter in now and worship. The communion elements are here. If you've never taken communion before, just come and take the, the bread and just dip it in the, the cup. And as you partake, remember His body that was broken. And remember His blood that was shed. And remember all that He purchased and how thorough and complete His work on the cross was.